Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman or non-binary person who works in the media or publishing industries, discovering how they turned creativity into a career. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love it if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost us in the charts. If you would like to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee on coffee.com slash she's creative pod. That's ko fi.com slash she's creative pod. My guest on this episode is writer, presenter and author Sean Fay. Sean has written for the likes of The Guardian, Vice, Dazed and hosts the Call Me Mother podcast. Her upcoming book, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice, comes out in September. Hi, Sean. Thanks for coming on. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, Just to start things off, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? Um, So I grew up in Bristol. Um, Yeah, pretty much my entire um, life from birth until I went to university. Um, I lived in Bristol um, and uh, my mother was originally a nurse when I was born, um, working in palliative care. And my father was a teacher, but my father kind of left after my parents divorced and wasn't around much. And my mum was a single parent. And so when I was about 11, 12, 13, she retrained. She'd not been to university. My father had trained as a teacher, not got a degree, but he had trained as a teacher. My mother hadn't ever gone to university. She'd gone to nursing college. But she, whilst uh, whilst I was a teenager, went to university she initially got a diploma in counselling, was going to become a therapist, but then she got a degree in social work and she became a social worker, which she still is. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I don't know that I did, you know. I think it sounds it sounds strange, but I think I've... I haven't... Well, maybe I have fallen into it, which I, th- I always think is a weird thing to say because it sounds like those people who are, like, super privileged who are just like, I just fell into this. You know, people... <laughs> Anna Wintour is like, I just fell into being the editor <laughs> of Vogue. It's, um, it's, it's not really like that. It's that I think... I Yeah, I always enjoyed writing. And I guess when I was a... When I was at school, I mean, like... I was I was pretty, like, all, an all-rounder at school, but I knew that, like, English literature or whatever was, like the subject I was best at and considered best at which is why I did a degree in it and um my I remember my teachers sort of like you know saying your essays are really well written or whatever or they're kind of advanced for so I knew that I was like a good writer and that I was good at structuring an argument when I was quite young but I guess yeah you just when you you're that age you're just looking at it in terms of like your essays and like when you go to university it's like your essays and I didn't ever really think of it. I did a bit of student journalism but I wasn't one of those like hardcore you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't write short stories. I didn't write fiction. So I didn't really think of myself as a writer. And then after um, I, I got to my final year of my degree and I, uh, the recession uh, had just started, the 2008 recession had started while I was at university, Lehman Brothers collapsed and so on. And so the, the graduate market was hugely changing from what it had been like. Um, and I was I panicked and was like I don't know what I'm going to do and so I thought well you should become a lawyer because that's like solid well paid and people really respect it 21 year old me naively so I went to law school um, and did postgrad law and the LPC which is the professional qualification to become a solicitor and then I became a paralegal and then I eventually trained in the city of London as a solicitor but whilst I was doing that law was the wrong choice for me as I can probably go into a bit more but 
one of the reasons I realised it was the wrong choice for me was that obviously I was suddenly deprived of anything creative. Law gives you lots of skills, but it does not allow mm-hmm. creativity, particularly when you're younger. And suddenly, whereas I'd always had an outlet and I had always been writing, whether it was essays or whether it was like, you know, bits of journalism, I suddenly felt very bereft and I started blogging um, classically. Uh, and I wrote like a pop culture blog and I used to share that like on my Facebook and Twitter. This is like 10 years ago. And it was just like the only thing that I sort of like, it was one, like my favorite hobby really. Um, and and yeah, and so from there, the blog, I think the first time I got commissioned like for paid articles because someone had read my blog mm-hmm. and an editor approached me and it sort of built up from there. And it kind of simultaneously as I was realizing law was the wrong choice and I needed to leave it, which I did very quickly, um, I started ramping up the writing. And so that's kind of how I fell into it. Um, it wasn't something I set out to be, I'm going to be a writer. Yeah. Do you remember what that first um, piece of paid work was? Yes. <laughs> I'm laughing because it, um, it was a piece for the Guardian Weekend um, about <laughs> being a man who wears makeup, which is obviously <laughs> very comical considering that I subsequently transitioned and uh, identify as a woman. But um, yeah, it was because I had written about feminine gender expression or something like that. And uh, yeah, which I was, I was very gender fluid when I was younger. And I guess for the Guardian weekend is, you know, it's that kind of the classic Guardian were liberal, but, you know, not that out there. And they, you know, it was enough that I was someone that was like a solicitor, had this very kind of professional Mm. job. But yeah, I used to basically present in a very gender non-conforming way in my free time and um, was very connected to like the queer scene. So they thought it was interesting that I wrote about that and it did get like a lot of uptake. I think it, yeah. it was really popular um, amongst LGBT people, I guess, because it was in such a mainstream. And it was before the whole wave of journalism about queer trans stuff that we see now. This was like 2013. Um, so yeah, so that was my first piece. It was just like a personal essay um very light-hearted compared to what I've ended up doing <laughs> and you left law what were you were you freelancing at that point yeah I was initially so what happened is that yeah I left law and I was like I'm stuck I don't know what to do so I was living in London obviously as a lawyer and then I, I quit my job and I'd had you know a lawyer salary especially compared to a freelance writer's uh, income is very different so I actually moved back to Bristol uh, and moved back in with my mum for a bit um, and so I was about 26, 27 at this point. Uh, and yeah, I started freelancing. And I'd, so after the, um, the piece I just described, the makeup piece and sort of like beauty piece that I did, um, I started writing about LGBT issues. And again, I was in flux in my identity then. So initially it started probably with more of a focus on like non-binary and gay, non-binary people and gay men. And then obviously it's changed as I've evolved in my identity. But um, I started writing for Dazed. Um, and I wrote some pieces like for the 2015 general election, I wrote a piece about hate crime, LGBT hate crime, and that was a bit more serious and a bit more reported. And I started writing regularly about them for LGBT issues and Thomas Gorton, who's a, still a friend of mine, who's um, still at Dazed, he just seemed to really champion my work and really, really encourage me. It was like one of those things where you have a really great relationship with an editor who's really like, no, you should, you're really good, you should be doing this. Um, and so, yeah, so when I first was freelancing, Dazed was a huge part of, of the rise of my profile um and they gave me a column uh in yeah in 2015 it didn't pay fantastically I can say that um but obviously that regular spot of like 
building up a brand and the idea that people there's something that you're doing actually mm-hmm. I found writing a column at that time really hard like it was going to be a weekly column and then quite quickly I was like no it needs to be every two weeks and then suddenly it became monthly because I just didn't have some people call it some column people can clearly find something to say every week but especially these days as a youth magazine there's a limit to what you can talk about um but yeah having that regular space and that regular exposure and that space to pretty much say what I wanted or write on what I wanted was really really lucky so early on um for someone mm-hmm. that was you know just decided to start freelancing as well as the writing you've done a lot of different creative stuff um you've also done stand-up is that right yes <laughs> yeah can you tell me about that yeah so again something I fell into basically um <laughs> So I'll, I'll be honest, how I started doing stand-up was I was asked, there was a group, uh, an, like a group in that used to meet in Soho in central London uh, called Let's Talk About Gay Sex and Drugs. And it was almost like a sort of like creative support group. Now, I, I was never involved in like the gay drug sex scene. I mean, I would, I would happily own up to it if I was, but I wasn't. <laughs> but I, did have, I did have friends who, who were chemsex, you know, sex parties. And I think this was a support group for maybe for men who, when some of them were still involved in that scene, some of them weren't and had had negative experiences, addiction, et cetera. And it wasn't like a support group, but it kind of was. And I guess like I'd gone there a couple of times to see my friends perform and a lot of people there had liked my social media. And I was asked if I would speak at one of them, you know, maybe talk about my work or talk about, you know, write reads. And I kind of sort of did like a talk at one of them and I put loads of jokes in to kind of lighten the mood. And I realized that people found the jokey bits better than, <laughs> than maybe the serious bit <laughs> and then I was like well yeah like I like I could just tell these jokes and so I there was a couple of like queer like there's there's certain comedy nights that um they're often for, for women or for LGBT people for minorities where it's kind of like un, the idea is you bring sketch material unfinished material that you wouldn't necessarily performing like a full comedy club in a and it's like the audience is a bit more sympathetic so I started going to those and doing material and uh, yeah, it just took off from there. And so like, I I did a lot on the kind of queer cabaret scene and then I started to get paid for it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that actually in the end, the writing, uh, there's almost two avenues my career could have gone down. And maybe, you know, I'll return to it, is that I could have almost pursued comedy and the whole idea of like writing a, a one person show or taking it to Edinburgh or that kind of thing, or pursuing um, the more serious kind of, journalism that I've or, or yeah mm-hmm. like political writing that I've pursued <laughs> given the pandemic and given the fact that stand-up comedy doesn't exist anymore <laughs> yeah I think I made financially the right choice but like I see myself primarily as like a funny fun person not as a sort of serious here's why you should give people human rights person <laughs> but unfortunately uh the way it's gone is that I've probably leaned more into the serious side of my career but yeah so so I yeah I've done stand-up um and and yeah, and I, I guess I guess the way that it, even now with the serious stuff, it, it's really good that I have that too because it means that when I do panels or talks, which I still am required to do on on some of the stuff that I do in journalism and my other writing, it's still good to be able to like make people laugh, particularly when you're talking about serious stuff, especially when trans women are framed as like angry, unsi- like can't take a joke, serious, like mm. trans issues are very gloomy. Um, and fraught you know there's this whole narrative around it that if you just come on and you're quite self-effacing and um, willing to like not be too take yourself too seriously I think it helps yeah do you think that led to any of the presenting work that you've done yeah I think it did so the so the other sort of other key thing for me so when I was um 
So this is, we're talking 2015, 2016 now. So yeah, I've quit being a lawyer. Well, I'm actually still doing some paralegaling to make money on in a day job, but I've quit being a fully qualified lawyer. That's gone. Mm-hmm. And I've transitioned now and I'm living as a woman, um, which obviously again complicates uh, my employment prospects as, as it just does. Like in, in, you know, in a weird way, <laughs> in I think it's worth saying this, in 2015, 2016, there was almost a thirst for, because Laverne Cox had come out in the States um, on the cover of Time magazine, and there was this, you know, Caitlyn Jenner had come out. There was this whole visibility moment where actually the media were very keen on trans stories and trans writers, and I don't think that's the case anymore. There's been such a backlash. But I came out right at, and started my transition publicly right at the right time where people really wanted people to write and commission mm-hmm. you, um, which is a mixed bag, right? Because I think actually I was also in a vulnerable state myself. And sometimes there are things I regret having written because I felt they I gave away too much of myself or exposed too much of myself like um, publicly in a way that you could never take back. Mm-hmm. And I would always say to any writer, especially of a minority, I like, think about what what is doing for you. What If you're sharing a very personal experience beyond the fee, what is it doing for you? And um, yeah. how are you gonna feel about this in five years? Anyway, I, so I was I was writing, and this is when I was given the dazed column, and as I say, this and social media kind of both helped me build up a brand. And then Navara Media, which um, for people who don't know, is a left-wing um, media that works in multimedia. It's, um, it's existed for almost 10 years now, I think. Um, some people might know Ash Sarka is an editor at Navara Media, and that's kind of how she became prominent um, left-wing commentator. Um, they approached me, someone who no longer works there approached me, and actually I, I, had, I had been a housemate of one of the people that founded Navarra, and they didn't realize this. And they were like, oh, we really like your column, would you be interested in making a video? Because we do video content. So I made a video called, what does it mean to be queer? And uh, yeah, it was literally filmed in someone's kitchen, and like I wore this stupid elaborate outfit, you know, whatever, but I'd scripted it. And, um, you know, it was, it was edited by someone else, and it was kind of like, yeah, like, like a like mini, again, fun lecture about like, this is what queer theory means. This is what this means. This is why some people identify as queer instead of gay, instead of trans, whatever. And it went online and it did really well. Like on Facebook, it was it, it, it like was the most shared video that Navarra had ever produced. And it like got shared and it, it built up like, and I started doing more of those videos because they were such hits. And they gave me kind of an American audience too, of like American LGBT people. So I was kind of building up a very, very small cult following. And I think those videos I'm really grateful for the opportunity to those videos do because I would never have known before I did those videos that video was a medium I could work in Mm -hmm. and obviously it gave me a huge amount of confidence because I had a lot of control I was like I was in charge of the script I was in charge of like what it looked like and what I was wearing and what I was going to say and so it gave yeah so in terms of the presenting stuff I think it gave me the confidence to yeah to do other stuff um so I've other video medium media I've kind of worked in is uh, in 2017, the Tate Britain did, had an exhibition called Queer British Art, and that was it was only until 18 something, 1850s until the 60s. But at the very end, they wanted f- a, f- a few video uh, videos, like short films, that featured um, modern day <laughs> LGBTQ people talking about some aspect of their identity. And I did a film with Random Acts Channel 4 for that called Catechism, which was about the first year of me living as a trans woman and about my experience at that time. It's very locked in that time. It's not really relevant to my life now. But um, again, that was shared online eventually. It was in, it was on exhibition in the Tate, which was such an amazing thing for like a first short film I'd ever written for like the best part of the year. And then 
it went online and again it was it was quite it was quite widely shared so I've had some luck in terms of that kind of online virality Mm -hmm. um do you think that all that kind of thing is that how you gained such a big social media audience yeah I think so I think it's a I think it's a combination of those things like so as as you probably can tell is that I haven't really ever stuck to one thing exactly so like I'm a bit I always think that I'm kind of like a jack of all trades like I'm not you know I've never really pursued I've never had a staff job in journalism and I've never been a full-time freelancer where it's my only source of income mm-hmm. like you know, writing like pitching every day you know like some of my friends who are wake up pitch you've got these articles to write this is your income you know for years and years and years on end I've never been able to sustain that like I've had to get day jobs I've had to um, so yeah, so that kind of mixed thing is that I think it means I've brought together my social media following has grown because I guess, yeah, there's there's enough that pulls in different people from different spheres and they come together to form quite a large audience and also different platforms. I think I've I've always enjoyed social media and I think I've learned what work for me, what works for different platforms. I mean, I used to use social media just I used to just be a person on it right and make friends and talk about my personal life and talk about that and there's a point where you realize oh god <laughs> I'm a media figure apparently and I now and a particular controversial one right like I'm, I'm a trans woman in Britain that that makes me automatically controversial is um <laughs> it only takes a few times of people going through tweets trying to find ammunition to use against mm. you um, or people trying to smear you or people trying to dox you it just happened to me to make it very much how you professionalize your whole social media output so um, whereas I can't yeah my Twitter now is like it's a very curated persona and it's not necessarily it's I wouldn't talk on it like I'm talking to you now um, yeah so that's that's kind of how I used I've used social media and I think yeah now I see it as a tool to point people mm-hmm. to the stuff that I make money from rather than like a hugely expressive thing do you ever feel a pressure to be an activist on social media because of your platform yeah so the interesting thing this this question of what who's an activist right so nowadays I think because of the way that um progressive social movements have like become very atomized and individualized and also monetized so you get like, activist influencers and things like that on, on Instagram like you know I'm I'm queering um, this or like this is a radical lipstick or whatever and it's actually just advertising um, with a kind of with a kind of radical uh, graphic design or whatever is um, there's this huge pressure because actual activists right this is a key thing actual activists to me are people who work in collective movements who do unglamorous work who like aren't necessary names you would know they're the people who sweep up after after a commuter meeting of like a feminist in a, in a town hall or people who are on demos kind of organized or like you know like the Stansted 15 we've just seen you know who, who have lost so much in the last two years this is a group of 15 activists who locked on to a flight to stop it deporting um, LGBTQ well deporting refugees full stop and uh, I know some of the people involved in that and they were charged with terrorism and they've just been acquitted you know that to me is an activist right like po- me posting about the fact that I'm a trans woman and I deserve equal rights isn't activism. It's just me wanting to be treated like a human being. But because the more that you acquire like a blue tick on Twitter, the more that you get this huge engagement, it, we've we've kind of deluded ourselves that that may, makes certain people, if they're from minorities, 
really, really resistant to that because I don't think I, I deserve the title. And also it, it puts too much of a burden of expectation. So um, I do feel a pressure. I am often labeled an activist whenever I see it. Like if someone's like right, written a bio for me at an event and they put activist and I always take it out, but mm. you can't always control that. But, um, but what I would say now is I'm a writer whose work is always going to hopefully feed back into act my writing is informed by people's activism and I hope my right it's like cyclical I hope my writing also feeds into activism but that does not necessarily make me an activist it makes me someone that I like arguments and analysis and um yeah and some things about strategic communication and about how to get people so something like trans issues right like a lot of people feel frightened to talk about it don't understand it don't feel very clever about it is how can you equip people who aren't trans with the tools to be like, mm -hmm. I understand this. And also I can, in my own life, I can actually stand up for this group of people. Um, when you're writing articles, do you ever feel like you're pigeonholed to talk about a certain thing? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I've, I've resisted it a lot. Actually, do you know what? I, I, it's a mixture is that I get a lot of um, approaches from editors. I very mm -hmm. rarely pitch about trans stuff I get approached and I turn now increasingly I turn loads down because it just is too boring what they want me to write about too. <laughs> I don't care I don't you know there's this assumption that because I'm a trans woman I care about gender deeply and actually I used to five years ago because obviously I didn't know what my I was working myself out so it was very interesting to me at that time I thought I was the most interesting person alive as the first person who ever transitioned when you get very used to life as a trans person it becomes very boring very and very mundane very quickly and so I'm not that interested in gender. I'm not that interested in identity. So quite quickly, it it becomes like, well, a lot of, a lot of the things that I want to talk about, um, which I do in my book, which we can talk about in a bit. But one of the things, a lot of the stuff I want to talk about is the political stuff about being trans, about like how are trans people discriminated against. And it's very rare that people want me to write about that. They want, you know, they want me to respond to like transphobic talking points or to, pop culture stuff like should trans actors be you know about the amount of times I've been asked to write the article should trans actors um should cis actors be able to play trans mm. parts and mm -hmm. I have written that article I wrote it for Playboy they sent me a check with the bunny ears on it which was very weird <laughs> <laughs> amazing but, um, yeah it was about Scarlett Johansson um who I would be very happy to people were like Scarlett Johansson shouldn't be playing trans people I was like Scarlett Johansson can play me if she wants to <laughs> um, but yeah I um uh, so yeah, I do, I do, I have had to resist being pigeonholed, but you know what, some of the editors I work with, um, I think in newer media, so at Vice, um, at Dazed, uh, at, um, I'm trying to think of others, like, in fairness, uh, The Guardian is a different issue, um, because I've sort of professionally fallen out with The Guardian because of their stance on trans issues, but some editors at The Guardian, you know, they are keen at the independent stuff like that, they want me to write about TV and pop culture, because I do write about that, so people who aren't you know I'm not assuming anyone who's listening to this is familiar with my work like I do write about trans issues a lot because I feel as we said in the answer to the previous question there are so few trans people particularly trans women who are given any kind of platform in the media at all in Britain to, to speak on behalf of trans people that I almost do feel a kind of burden because if I don't you know it's not if I don't know one will but if I don't there are very few other people who are um but like my yeah my core writing what I enjoy writing the most is like pop culture so like stuff like I you know like I wrote an entire 
article about one Lana Del Rey Instagram post, like a 1200 word article, or like I wrote about um, Taylor Swift's song London Boy and about how she's kind of like doing a British accent, you know, like those kind of like, I wrote, uh, yeah, like Lady Gaga's album Chromatica when it was released last year was like my favorite thing to write. It was just about, you know, how she'd released this really camp return to form album right in the middle of the pandemic when no one can go out. Like those, those are the things that, you know, they sound very, you know, frothy, but they are the things that interest me and having intelligent, I love, intel I love in other writers, intelligent writing about things that are considered frivolous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so, so yes, I try. So luckily lots of editors I've worked with are like, actually, we'd love you to write more of this stuff and not so much, you know, you don't have to write about trans stuff. And, and so actually, yeah, I, I feel, I feel less pigeonholed now than I perhaps did a few years ago. You were saying as well, the editors approach you a lot. How much of that, how much of your writing is people approaching you versus you pitching? Uh, right. So, yeah, and I feel, I feel bad saying this for people who are listening, probably desperately pitching, is I'm terrible at, well, I'm not terrible at it, but I'm lazy about it. And I think, again, it's because I've always relied on day jobs too. So as a rule, I've tended to have day jobs. So currently I work for a, a, a third sector organisation, um, and I, it's actually, I'm working full time at the moment. Um, but um, yeah, I've done part time before where, yeah, you, you just got that fixed undercurrent salary. And that the, the I would recommend that to anyone, especially the way that journalism in particular is now is um, you can make it, I think it, it just, it takes a lot of the pressure off and, mm -hmm. um, and that panic. And also creatively, you know, a lot of people who have to rely on freelancing, it probably means if you've got rent to pay and stuff like that, you're, you're going to have to write things you don't, you don't really want to write and things that maybe you're not that comfortable writing, like that does happen. And that byline is there forever. So my personal recommendation is always consider getting a day job um, uh, with the way the media is now. And so, yeah, I think, uh, so because I've had that baseline, it means I don't have to pitch as much. Um, so I, I've gotten quite lazy about it. I do get a lot, I do get a lot of approaches. It is easier, the bigger associate, that's the advantage, everyone hates Twitter now. It's a really horrible place, <laughs> but it it is useful for that. Like I can, I you can tweet if you've got enough followers and you've got editors and stuff following you. I, I've actually got some capacity now. I'd really like to be working on stuff like this. And actually I do find people get in touch with you. Um, and yeah, so, so on the whole, it, I do pitch sometimes, but recently in the last year or two, it has been mostly that I've waited for approaches, but I realise that's quite a specific position and it relies on having an income that isn't connected to freelance writing. Do you feel like when you start writing stuff, it's like that's when the ball gets rolling? I feel like it's probably hardest for people to, you know, get their first few bylines kind of thing. Yeah, it is. And I think it's especially hard if you want to do, so the, like I said, the kind of writing that I do, which I think there's a lot of people do, like, like I said, this like pop like culture writing. Mm -hmm. It's a weird one because when you try and pitch those ideas, I think when you don't have rapport with an editor, you can just sound a bit, <laughs> I was going to say insane, but you can sound insane <laughs> sometimes, but you could also sound like, um, so, so like, for example, last year when the, this was about, um, seven days into the first lockdown, Lana Del Rey posted on her Instagram um, a track that she maybe has recorded that was called, If This Is The End, I Want A Boyfriend. And I had just broken up with my boyfriend. So I literally, because I had a contact with the editor, I was like, 
Um, Lana Del Rey's just posted this. There's a pandemic. <laughs> We're all in our houses. I've just broken up with my boyfriend. I, can I write a whole essay about this? <laughs> obviously, that sounds, you know, if you were getting that cold in an inbox, that doesn't sound like anything. And so the trouble is, I think to have the freedom and the trust to write some of that the stuff that I found is more expressive. And it, is, it always has been quite successful, actually. Um, you, have to, you have to have that relationship. So I think in the beginning, when people are starting out, they have to, yeah, you just have to do the kind of read the pitch guidelines, um, be really succinct. Um, I think, you know, it's the stuff about like people love a hook to why it's, it's current and stuff mm. like that. So it's about thinking about doing the, you know, when you highlight the text and click and link out to something relevant so the editor can just click and see why it's relevant you do have I, and I used to do that so I, I've written for newspapers too I wrote for the Guardian a lot until the end until the end of 2018 and with with them they did approach me initially first for trans pieces but um yeah I would I would still have to form what you always with the Guardian have to pretty much formally pitch and so I used to do that a lot with them and I'd have to like you know evidence why it's a news hook and why this is relevant um so yeah you'll, you'll always have to do that at the start I think what is your kind of what's your writing process like if you're you know working part-time do you do it in the evening that kind of thing yeah I mean so I see I don't this is one thing I, I'll, I'll be I'll be opinionated on is I see a lot of it with like people who work in writing of all kinds on particularly on social media so there's this like fetishization of the process of writing where people really talk about it like you know I find it quite <laughs> quite off-putting because I always think god do you we all sound like wankers so I try not to do it but as you've asked <laughs> the disclaimer is I don't know it's yeah for me it's always changed it's changed according to myself I don't fetishize the process so I, I don't I don't really believe like writers block I do think there's a periods in my life where <laughs> I've completely got no idea about what to pitch and that can be really panicking if you're relying on it for money but in terms of the actual process of writing yeah I'm a huge procrastinator I tend to write everything in one sitting um, if it's an article length obviously <laughs> not my book um, and yeah I mean I used to write a lot in the evenings I liked it the fact that I always lived with other people if you're house sharing with people the fact that it's just you know when everyone's gone to sleep it's just perfectly quiet and I used to do that but now I'm getting older <laughs> I've become a little bit more disciplined and tend to write um in the daytime and tend to use annual leave days or days non-working days um what I would say is it's changed a lot with lockdown um and with the fact that so I've just I've just finished my first book which is called The Transgender Issue An Argument for Justice um which is a non-political uh, non-fiction title about um, the oppression and discrimination that trans people in Britain face and about how uh, the liberation of trans people will help all of society and it's kind of a bit like um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by Rene Oda Lodge but kind of like the trans version if I crudely um, for people who are kind of wondering so anyway that kind of book it's my first book ever and obviously anything of that length 90,000 words is with that and with the you know I, I'd, I'd, I got that book deal two years ago it's just finished now the first year I yeah, I'd write bits and pieces, but it was very disjointed. I'd go to a cafe some days, but I was really worried about making it on time. And then suddenly the pandemic happened. Our entire social lives were cancelled. You couldn't see anyone. So, so in a weird way, it's kind of like a dream because, <laughs> because um, yeah, because then I suddenly took to being like very like, which I've mm -hmm. never done before, where I got up and I would write a thousand words a day, come what may. And mm -hmm. I just did that until the whole first draft was finished. And I can see if you're writing book lengths, and I know novelist friends of mine, say that they have to do that and I get why it's because when you're if you leave a project like that a really big project um 
too long it becomes almost like this anxiety about getting back into it like the idea of reopening it and finding back where you were and getting worse if you're immersed in it and you're doing it every day I think it is I think it's the best way to write a longer title like a book but articles yeah it's 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 as and when I once got um I once got fired from a day job for writing an article on work time <laughs> I will disclose that exclusively they frog marched me out they fired me for gross misconduct which I thought oh was God. very extreme yeah I mean it was cool yeah <laughs> well it's good now we're all at home so <laughs> managers can't <laughs> spy on us directly um what yeah so you were talking about your book how did that project come about um so I never thought I was going to I didn't think I was going to write a book as I say because I was really into the comedy and I got really burned out by I, I was writing for the Guardian my entry to the Guardian was like 2018 and I had always wanted to write for the Guardian classic like liberal lefty had read, read the Guardian growing up that kind of middle class person and um yeah and then the Guardian's always had this kind of quite problematic history with with trans people and then I think there was a couple of editors who wanted a, 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 um, more trans writers there not thinking about why are all the tra- I didn't think why are all the trans writers who used to write for you not writing for you anymore I was just too mm. flattered and went with it and um so I wrote some pieces for them um and I tried to think outside the box I felt like the discussion was really really limited about trans issues in the UK and the debate and all that sort of stuff um and so I was like well the Guardian's a huge platform so like try and write things that are fresh and original and that was really good it gave me loads of kind of thought about like so I instead of writing about um women and like are, are trans women a risk to the rights of cisgender women I was like how about we talk about like how trans politics fits into class politics like trans people are much likely to be poorer than the average person like you know like trans people earn way less when they're in employment lots of trans people are in sex work because uh employment isn't available illicit legal employment isn't available to us and i just thought well no one's ever written about that in the guardian before and i and i really really enjoyed it unfortunately the guardian then published in october 2018 uh, an editorial so it's the paper's line that was very transphobic to, to my ears anyway and made it impossible for me to feel comfortable writing there anymore so at that point I was disillusioned and I was like well I've been doing stand-up comedy people have been you know I'd had meetings with um, BBC comedy people at BBC comedy I'd sort of got um, been talking about maybe getting a comedy agent and I was like oh god I was like uh, yeah I'll, maybe I could get into I'd love to write like scripted comedy for TV you know kind of like Fleabag that kind of vibe that's the dream and there was no way I was going to be writing about trans issues <laughs> but um yeah but so in December 2018 my now agent literary agent Emma Patterson Aiken Alexander she DM me and said or contacted me through a friend a mutual friend and was like I'm just interested to see if you'd be interested in representation and I'd been approached by agents before and turned them down and I was like I don't know I've not really not sure about a book and she was like well how about and I was uh staying with family in Bristol because it was Christmas time at that time and she was like well how about I get the train down to Bristol and we could have a coffee and I was quite impressed by the fact she offered to travel like no one ever mm-hmm. offers to leave London uh, someone that's worked in and out of London a lot no one wants to come to you especially pre like nowadays you've just gone zoom but obviously it was pre the era of zoom um and I was really impressed she got a train down and came down for like a two-hour coffee or whatever and I'll be honest it was financial it was that I there were certain things about you know I'd, I'd been medically transitioning for several years it's a very expensive process I had 
been in, as I say, the creative industry, which is not very well paid. You work really hard and you don't actually get huge amounts of it. And obviously I'd had being a lawyer to compare it to. And I was like, look, I would only be interested in writing a book if it's going to be financially rewarding enough considering how much effort it is and how much like this topic is so weighty and so mm-hmm. like it's a huge burden for me because this is like a whole community of people that I'm essentially I can't avoid it would be speaking for and I'm going to get probably a lot of harassment for this and you know this is this will take books take up three four years of your life both in terms of the writing and then the publicity and the paperback and the hardback coming out and I was like if I'm going to devote a huge chunk of my life to this <laughs> it has to be well paid and she was like I think we could get like a good deal if you know that's what an agent is for and she kind of convinced me um and so I was like well I could write this book and I basically said you know there's been like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race there's been like a Carla natives for her she's written so there's lots of books about it around, around race in the UK um, but there isn't really about this issue and um, there are very few people who probably have the platform to and I guess I might and she agreed and so yeah the combination of the fact that she was really enthusiastic um, about the project and uh, and I and kind of promised me to be frank that it would be well paid and it might alleviate a lot of the financial issues that I might have for the next few years and it has like my book advances that's why as well I'm able to be a lot more relaxed now is because my book advance filled a lot of gap of like you know it's a big chunk of earnings frankly that's that's what happens if you sign to a big publisher so um yeah so so I so I so I started developing a proposal so again, I did, it wasn't, I, I sound, I sound probably, it's like I'm in Mean Girls. So she's like, I don't send candy canes. I just get them. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I didn't go out where so many people obviously are kind of desperate to write books. Again, I kind of fell into it. it was, but obviously I did, once I wrote the proposal, I had to go through a full auction process and, and really pitch myself to publishers. But it was Emma that kind of talked me into it rather than often the way around is that people want to write a book and they approach an agent. And the agent says no uh, or yes. So that, that's how the book came into existence. You were talking about writing a, a proposal. How, um, how collaborative is that with your, your agent? I think, well, for, in my case, again, and I think I'm, I'm really bigging up Emma here because I would to anyone who's listening. And I think what, I, what attracted me to her, I should say, is, um, is that she had an amazing list of other writers. Most of them were women and a, like a large probably the majority of those women were women of color and the reason even though I'm a white woman I think the reason that appealed to me is because I'm a trans woman right so um I'm a minority I'm a minority within like women are kind of not uh, sidelined as writers full stop women of color are and definitely trans women are and um and so the very fact that she was someone that was taking it in the publishing industry which is still very white very male um had this amazing list of really successful authors um W- w- yeah it was a sign of reassurance to me that this is someone that will get me and get, and I think that's really important is particularly if you're from, yeah from a minority or whatever is you want an agent who gets what you're about at the core because they have to kind of think about who what, what editors are going to get what publishing houses are going to get who you are because they really you know often they don't get who you are or what you're about what your book is trying to say and you don't want to like weirdly get your project I don't know like dragged into a direction you don't want it to um, so I, uh, that was that was really great. So it, put a lot, it made me instantly have quite a lot of trust in her, and obviously as did our conversation. So yeah, when I started working on the proposal for her, with her, it was very collaborative. Um, 
I'm quite a needy writer, I should say that, in the sense that I like feedback after a certain point. I mean, if it's something that I've been doing for years, like a quick column on, like I write a column on drag, on UK, on RuPaul's Drag Race UK every week at the moment, I don't really need like loads of feedback on my, uh, from an editor on my column about drag queens. But, um, but if it's something like, you know, something new, something out of, out of my comfort zone, like a book proposal. I, yeah, I really liked feedback. So I would regularly, you, so typically for a nonfiction proposal, you submit um, a kind of one A4 statement about like why this book should exist. And then about you and your career and why you're the person to write the book is basically what you're saying. And kind of like maybe what other, why the book would be commercially successful. You're supposed to allude to that, like what other titles are on the market that maybe this book could do what, you know, um, so, so, that, so there's that kind of like one sort of like sell yourself statement thing that's maybe like two sides of A4. Then you write a, cha- a full chapter plan for nonfiction because with fiction you submit a whole manuscript but with nonfiction you just submit a chapter plan which is like what a paragraph on what every chapter in the book will cover. And then you submit sample writing which is typically one full chapter. So the first two were kind of easy. I kind of worked that out pretty easily. She did help a lot, but it's obviously the sample chapter because you, it needs to be interesting enough and lively enough and give a sort of side of your writing. And yeah, so there was a lot of collaboration on that. So, so I first met her in December and I started work on it pretty immediately. And I'm quite a fast writer as well. So I, we started taking it to um, publishers in mid-February, around Valentine's Day, around this time. So yeah, so so a good two months really working on the proposal. And that was with quite a lot. I worked quite intensively on the proposal. And then is it taken to publishers and they and they negotiate a book deal kind of thing? Yeah, so well, the ideal would be if, 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 if your agent's kind of savvy enough is that they take it to several publishers or editors mm-hmm. they think will... Um, will resonate with the book and then what you try and do especially if you're interested in money as I was (laughs) is um, you want several publishers interested because what happens then is that you go into an auction Mm -hmm. where um, they drive each other's offers up because what you get obviously with a book deal for people who don't know is an advance um, which is an is a a sum that's paid to you before uh, before you sell, sell any books right so the publisher things you're worth this amount and it's to help you with the cost of writing the book and living and stuff like that um and yeah basically so that when the book comes to bookshops and it's sold you have to make that advance back in sales before you start to get any royalties so it's 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 money that you get in the future and obviously if you don't write the book or whatever <laughs> you have to give it back so um so, so yeah so so obviously they all come in with you know offers of advances but obviously the way to drive your advance figure up is if you get multiple publishers excited about it and they start to, to bid each, you know, it's like bid, a bidding war. Um, and that did happen with mine a little bit. It wasn't like a huge one. It was like by the end, it was like three publishers, but they did drive, you know, and then the end, they all kind of reached a mm-hmm. ceiling. They're not going to, they're not going to bid anymore. And then you just pick the one that you feel you vibe with the most. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, that's great. And how, how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it took me, so I signed in, so I'd written one chapter, well, one draft chapter as the proposal. So there's that, but then, the, yeah, there was like nine other bits to write. So um, I got, I signed in uh, in March, 2019. And I wrote about a quarter of it in 29, the rest of 2019. And the vast majority, so then the lockdown happened last March. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'd written about a third of it when the lockdown started last March. And then I wrote two thirds of it from March to June last year, which I would I would say is either unless you've got like some like 
ability to take a sabbatical and a writing retreat or <laughs> you're you're actually imprisoned by law in your own home because of a pandemic <laughs> it probably that that's probably faster than is typical but yeah it was because I, like I was still working full-time but like what was I going to do with my weekends what was I going to do with my evenings mm -hmm. <laughs> it actually became a huge life raft for my mental health the book in, in first lockdown and actually so I, I so so I wrote a first draft then it goes off in June and then in October it took a while so my editor then edited it and there was a second draft so now it's kind of gone to copy editing literally just now and actually I do feel quite at a loss without it um because it becomes such a big part of your life and mm. as I say it was a life raft for my mental health a huge project and um because of what it's about and I think the context uh around trans issues in this country has only become more and more deranged and hostile. And I just, I'm just so in despair at where we are in Britain in terms of this conversation and in terms yeah. of how trans people are treated is that it became a way uh, to, to funnel my rage, really, a, mm -hmm. a way to channel my rage. Like, okay, you can't change this. You can't change the fact that like, they're trying to stop kids accessing healthcare. You can't stop this, like you're powerless. But what you can do is this this book is the project that, that you can reach most people and you might change some people's minds and you might one day change the mind of someone that can, can affect change because they've got the power. You know, that's what you have to hope for. And so that to me was a big balm for my mental health last year when all sorts like Black Lives Matter the, the, the stuff about trans people in the press was all kicking off whilst we were all in lockdown. Um, and yeah, without it, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a bit bereft. It's true, it's a cliche, people say writing um, books are like babies or whatever, but it does kind of feel mm -hmm. like that when you let it go and you're like, oh no, I, you know, it's great that it's like, we're in the exciting bit now where the cover's being made and, you know, it's all publicity and stuff like that for, for a release in September. But, you know, I'm, I'm a bit sad that like this, this thing that, that I invested a lot of time in um is now gone yeah yeah I can imagine but you know at least um the you know the best is yet to come you can <laughs> reap all your rewards of all the hard work you've done do you know if there's ever kind of like a deadline or a certain amount of time that someone should write a book in after they get their advance normally you would agree that with them so I actually had a little extension of three months um which they said at the start they weren't too worried I mean the thing is with my book is it's about an issue that's very very topical in Britain and very fraught and there's a there's a sense of urgency to it that I want this book out in the world because I'm so angry with how a lot of the issues at hand are being misrepresented in the press and in the papers so I want it, I wanted it out like yesterday. So I had that urge and I think the publishers did too. But if you're if you're writing a book that's like more of a slow, but it really depends on the topic. If you're writing a book that's on a slow burn and you want to get the research right and you want to, you know, and if it's a novel, you know, some people, I mean, novels are a different thing because you tend to write a first draft before you even get an agent. But, you know, with a novel, you'd obviously take your time and, you know, it's, it's about getting it right. But yeah, there are some books where it's like if it's a slower burn and, you'd rather do that it really really depends on how timely the subject matter is I would always say it's better to take um, a little bit longer like I think there's an uh, there's a there's a thing now in the market I think because um, journalism is sort of falling apart as an industry and the printed press and the newspaper circulations down and I think what's happening in um, traditional media is that there's like these really well-paid baby boomer not to be I'm not being ageist but they are all baby boomers 
um, baby boomer columnists who are very handsomely paid, often quite reactionary, not in touch with young people's politics. And there, there's kind of a bottleneck where no one really, very few young voices, particularly, um, particularly like I'm, I'm a left wing writer, right? Like the left in Britain is very, um, uh, very weak right now. And there isn't really um, much of a call in, you know, a lot of our press is owned by Rupert Murdoch. You know, there isn't really much of a call. There's like Owen Jones and that's it. Ash Sarkar maybe. There's very few left wing voices. And so there's a bit of a bottleneck um, in terms of getting to, from people from minorities, people of the left, um, in traditional media, you're not going to really get a column now and you're not really going to progress. So what, what's happening, I think, is that the book market is booming because of the decline in the newspaper industry that a lot of writers are deciding to write nonfiction. And it's a huge explosion. If you think about The Secret Barrister, um, this is going to hurt by Adam McKay. Um, you know, these kind of nonfiction specialist titles, they've really, really been growing and they're really, really popular. Um, and that's great, but there, as with anything, the market, um, pub there are publishers that will take advantage of people and get people to kind of rattle off a book way too quickly, maybe about stuff that they haven't really done all the reading on, maybe stuff, you know, I think we've seen this a lot with, um, don't want to name names, but inst certain Instagram influencers who have been given really lucrative book deals when they're in their early 20s, mm -hmm. often young women writing about feminism. And it's not that those women aren't clever or whatever, but like, I, if someone had given me a book deal at 21, that book would have been shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what do I have to say about relationships or like, you know, the, the power dynamics between men and women or whatever, when I, you know, I don't feel I could even write that book now. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I, I, it's a concern of mine that I think, yeah, just take your time. I know that there's a kind of urgency to like everyone's now hustling and there's this idea you have to brand build and you have to have a, be a name and this is the next logical step is you, you should write a book. And it's like, yeah, well, do, but do you know, write the right book. I, I There were so many times where I almost considered writing a book that I would have wholly regretted it being my first book um, mm -hmm. in the past. And I'm really glad I waited until I had the right agent, the right deal. And yeah, it was in the right, right space in my life. Um, yeah. It wouldn't have been, even the book I'm writing now would not have been, the right thing for someone like me to have written when I just transitioned mm -hmm. seven years ago or whatever it was. What was your um, what was your research process like for the book? Um, so I think luckily because <laughs> luckily unfortunately um, if you're a trans journalist who ever has written on trans issues because of the way <laughs> sort of an advantage for writing a book but it's a terrible thing to be a human being is that because of the way that there's this really pernicious way of arguing over every aspect of trans lives particularly trans women's lives is that there's almost this pressure to be an expert on everything like endocrinology feminism queer history politics um, you know like I feel like I have to know what you know stuff about horm hormones and stuff about like sports science because like, people will ask you about the olympics even though i don't care about sport you know it's almost that you have to be like, on it because there are people willing to kind of like try and throw any kind of argument about why mm -hmm. your existence is inconvenient and unfortunately as someone that's always been kind of a bit of a nerd my way to respond to prejudice was to like my anxiety around prejudice was not to panic but was to be like if you if you have all the knowledge you can arm you which obviously i've said so you know the fact that you can learn and art you can't argue people out of prejudice like actually that's not the way you, you're going to win no minority wins that way but it, there was a time where I was very thoroughly convinced that if I knew everything if I was like the expert trans person that I would somehow be okay um mm -hmm. so the reason that ties into the book is that like it means that I'd done loads of amateur research <laughs> for years before I ever came to write it and I actually had quite a good grounding and a lot of reading that I'd done 
Um, so I just built upon that. I think one of the key things um, I should say about, so, uh, and we haven't really talked about this, but obviously, because journalism is a very elitist profession, and I, and, and whereas I, I've sort of talked a lot about being a trans journalist and, and about being uh, perhaps a minority in the media for that reason, as probably people can tell from the way I speak, I'm very middle class. I went to Oxford. Uh, a I was trained as a solicitor, you know, like I, I, I am by trans standards, an extremely privileged trans woman in Britain, a white middle class uh, university educated trans woman who does, who has an experienced family rejection and can earn her own money, um, you know, through, yeah, through writing. Th those are extremely rare experiences even now for trans people. Um, and so the key part of my book was that the it's not about my story, which is what a lot of people are expecting a memoir. And it's not about me because actually I'm very unrepresentative. What the book needed to do, I felt was, how do I utilize the advantages I have to talk about the trans people that don't have what I have? And, and so, you know, in, in journalism, what you'd say is, well, I'll do reported journalism. So if we're talking about trans people and homelessness, you'll talk to homeless trans people and uh, do, do a reported feature on them. Now, I could do that for Vice or whatever. The national newspapers aren't interested. I've tried to pitch those pieces. No one cares. Channel 4 News approached me a few years ago to, to get me to debate a transphobe on TV. And I was like, no, how about you do this report on homeless trans people? And they were like, mm -hmm. okay, maybe, never did. Mm -hmm. So I realized in the book, it's like, well, what, this is a space that I can do that. I can go out and talk to these people or I can collect, the, I can platform these voices. Um, and so for me, a big part of the research was kind of building up the relationships necessary and utilizing the networks I had to to try wherever possible to find those people and to amplify their experiences. And that takes time. Um, it takes time to build up trust with people. So like one of the, one of the things I interview in the book is a, a seven-year-old, a family of a seven-year-old trans person. Um, and, you know, parents are very, of trans kids who've socially transitioned young, are very um, targeted, are very afraid of press intrusion. And it takes time to build up the trust of a family like that. So it's so that that was a big part of it. Um, and then the other stuff was more academic kind of research as well, going through the classic thing, going to the British Library, researching historical records, checking your sources, that sort of stuff. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the book. It, it sounds like a really good book, and it's coming out in September. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's great. Um, just to finish things off, what general advice would you give to young women and non-binary people that are looking for a career in the media? Yeah so it's an interesting one I think I think you have to accept that uh, one uh, this is a really weird industry to work in and a very weird time to work at it there's nothing certain about a career trajectory I have no idea I cannot say with any certainty um, what I will be doing in five years <laughs> I could be needing to get a job desperately because like my book has not sold and I don't have any money and uh, the publications, as we've seen, you know, um, this in the past year, the publications that I used to write for have closed or laid people off or whatever. So, so there's no guarantee. So you have to accept that if you're someone, and I would say this mental health wise, if you're someone that will struggle a lot with, or if you are struggling a lot with the mental health um, fallout or anxiety of things being uncertain that's not your fault it's the nature of the industry and there's no failure in in accepting that that can be really really tough and I know people that have just decided no I'm going to go and become a teacher 
and you know there is something to be said I'm, I feel like I'm putting people off but there's no, a good no, caveat is, mm. is 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 there's no nothing wrong with saying and it's kind of what I say with the day job thing there's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to become a teacher and writing is going to be something that I just do here and there I might do three published articles a year but I want them to be top quality like why is that any worse than slaving away at um you know doing news stories of publications that you don't respect or don't like so so always think about that um about what it is you want from writing particularly if you're you know if it's a creative form of expression is to keep that special the other thing is though is i'd say you if you can make it work which there are ways i think for young women in particular there is a pressure on young women and non-binary people um to in the way that there isn't with men particularly cisgender men is that there isn't a uh, men get to be objective in in creative industries and they get to be women are expected whether it's filmmaking whether it's um yeah whether it's presenting whether it's um it's we are always expected to pour more of ourselves into it and be, be like relatable and likable it's the reason why like you know like most like, a lot of the instagram influences for example young women is that there's supposed to be that you have this public facing face that's supposed to be pleasant enough and not too challenging and i think it's just to really think about your boundaries um as I said earlier, the, the experience I can relate to much is like personal essays. There's still a huge personal essay industrial complex mm. for like getting women, young women in particular, promised entries into kind of journalism and contacts through perhaps oversharing. And, and, and that's fine. I've done that too. If you want to write an essay about your sex life, that's fine. But it's not the only, you know, don't worry about like, if you, if you, if you actually think, come on in five years, will I be okay with this? If, if, um, you know, if, if I was going for another job and they Googled this, um, would I feel embarrassed at the idea that someone I was applying to a job for, you know, has read this? You know, think through those questions because you can say no, there are there are other ways. And if you draw those boundaries, I think I, I have a big time for I have loads of time for confessional writing, but I think that there can be a coercion into it. Um, particularly if you're a minority woman too, so a woman of colour, trans woman, disabled woman and so just yeah I just think it's be a bit wily about think long term about um, how much of yourself you give away that would be my top tip that was writer Sean Fay you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Fay and her upcoming book The Transgender Issue An Argument for Justice is available to pre-order now I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can give a small donation on coffee at ko-fi.com slash she's creative pod. You can find the podcast on social media at she's creative pod and I'm on social media at underscore Claire Hutch. See you next time.